I felt hopeless when I was in my 15th year of wrongful imprisonment. All of my appeals had been exhausted. I had written letters for four years looking for legal help, rarely getting answers. And then the parole board denied me parole, largely in part because I had maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility. I was openly asking my new pen pal if I should give up or if I should commit suicide. That is a quote of my guest who is with us today. You are not going to want to miss this interview. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Jeffrey Deskovic is an internationally recognized wrongful conviction expert and founder of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which has freed 10 people and passed three laws aimed at preventing wrongful conviction. An advisory board member of the coalition, It Could Happen to You, which spearheaded the passage of four additional laws. I am so excited to have Jeffrey on this show today. He is definitely someone who never, ever gave up hope. So welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. So Jeffrey, I want you to tell your story. How did this happen? The year is 1990. The place is Peekskill, New York in Westchester County. It was middle class. It was ethnically diverse. And uh, in November, on November 15th, 1989, a classmate was found uh, murdered and raped. Um, she was, uh, Angel Correa was a immigrant from Colombia. She was living a very sheltered life. She never went anywhere, as I understand it, um, unless she was accompanied by her older sister or her parents. And uh, lived a very sheltered life is what my what my point is. And, you know, her body was found um, uh, naked from the waist down. She had been murdered and raped. You know, she disappeared on the 15th. Her body was found several days later, November 17th, 1989. Uh, I knew her name. She knew mine. That was really like the extent of it. Uh, we were. She was in two of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. Uh, we were not even on a high buy basis. I got on the police radar uh, because um, in the high school that I attended, the public school, I you know was quiet and said myself I didn't quite fit in. I mean I 
was very popular after school in the apartment complex, but in school that was a different set of kids. They were a little bit older than me, so I didn't fit in there and I was quiet to myself. And uh, the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school and some of them told the police that they might want to speak to me because I didn't fit in. Uh, an additional factor was that I was a sensitive teenager. This was my first brush with death. And as a result of that, I did have an emotional reaction. And the police thought that considering that I barely knew the victim, that that was uh, suspicious. But then again, this really shook up the whole city of Peekskill. Wow. To the point that free mental health counseling was offered to anybody that wanted it. I mean, murders were very rare. Um, so that, those two things. And then a reinforcing factor is that uh, the police got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which claimed to have the characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that. So it was a type of reinforcing factor. Oh, uh, my so, word. Yeah, so that's how that's how I got on the police radar. So but uh, so for about six weeks, the police played this pat, a cat and mouse game with me in which half the time they would speak to me as if I was a suspect. The other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. They would say things like the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Uh, let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. Prior to being a teenager, I wanted to be a police officer when I grew up. Huh. So... That intersected with that tactic. Wow. Uh, I came from a single-parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. And that also intersected with the good cop, bad cop technique in which one officer took on a more aggressive role and his partner pretended to be a friend and, you know, opposed to what's going on. So I began to look to him as a father figure is what the point is. Mm -hmm. And eventually they got me to agree to take a lie detector test it said some new information came into their file. They wanted to share that with me. That would allow me to be more helpful to them. Uh, but first, I have to take him past the polygraph. And from there, uh, the next day, I went to the police station for the test. It was on a school day. So I went to the police station rather than going to the high school. My mother and grandmother thought that I was in school, so they didn't call around looking for me. And they drove me to town of Brewster, which was in Putnam County, so 40 minutes away by car, which meant that I was not able to leave on my own anymore. I was totally dependent upon the police. Uh, they gave me, they didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. They gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked, but it had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand. But then again, I thought, well, I'm here to help the police, so what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. And from there, he put me in a small room and gave me countless cups of coffee to seems pretty clear. He did that to get me nervous. Wow. And, and by the way, this polygraph was actually a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, uh, Daniel Stevenson. And he, he was but he was dressed like a civilian. He was pretending not to be a police officer. So he never identified himself. He never read me my rights. And, and he attached me to this polygraph machine, and then he launched into his third-degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me, he invaded my personal space, he kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Uh, as each hour passed, my fear increased in proportion to the time. Towards the end, he said, 
what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And that really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me the other officers were going to harm me, that he'd been holding them off, but he couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he added, just tell them what they want to hear. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term, just thinking about my safety in the moment. Uh, I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew where I was either loomed quite large in my mind. I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. You know, and then there was this threat and then was this false promise. And so I took the out which he offered and I made up a story based on the information that he had given me in the course of the interrogation and in what I had gotten in the six weeks run up to that. Uh, by the time it was all said and done, I collapsed on the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Uh, needless to say, I was arrested. I was charged with a murder and rape. What about alibi? Okay, well, let's get into the trial some. So before I and how I was convicted, and alibi certainly turned, you know, factors into that. Uh, before I went to trial, the DNA test result came in from the FBI lab, which showed that semen found in the victim didn't match me. But the prosecutor got the medical examiner to claim that he found, to falsely say that he found medical evidence showing that the victim was promiscuous. And so that's what allowed the prosecutor to argue that she must have slept with someone else before I murdered and raped her. And that was why the DNA didn't match me. You know, it was not that I was innocent. Right. Then he mentioned another youth by name that he claimed slept with the victim. But he never had called that person as a witness. He never asked for a DNA test result to prove it. He just made the unsupported argument. Uh, my public, he got away with that because the victim's family was not coming to court. So they had no idea uh, what was being said about her in the courtroom in the furtherance of wrongfully convicting me. And my attorney, who was a public defender, um, essentially didn't defend me. So he did not speak to or call my alibi as a witness. Uh, he rarely met with me when I tried to explain that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room. He was always shutting me up. One time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. He uh, he never tried to explain to the jury what the DNA not matching me meant. He never used that to challenge the confession. He literally asked no questions of the medical examiner who was committing fraud. And, uh, you know, in terms of the confession, the uh, confession was not videotaped. It was not audio taped. There was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. And so when they came to court, they left the threat and false promise out of their story. Um, you know, my lawyer would not allow me to testify. Some, and sometimes he told the jury, he argued to the jury that the confession never happened. Other times he argued that the confession happened, but it was false. As still other times he argued that it was coerced by saying all these different theories rather than just picking a lane and going down it. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he had standing there with like no credibility, you know, just as somebody willing to say anything. Uh, so beyond that, the other three really quick irregularities about my trial that happened was that uh, the judge erroneously allowed the polygraphist to repeatedly tell the jury that I failed the polygraph uh, then the, the victim's bra, which had been admitted into evidence that the jury asked to see, uh, which was important because that intersected with 
one of the statements that they coerced out of me in which I said I ripped her bra off. There's, some bras can't be ripped off of a body by the way that they're made. So the jury asked to see the bra, and that's when the court said that the told everybody that the bra had been left in the courtroom over the weekend and that the janitors apparently thought it was garbage and they threw it out. Oh, my goodness. And lastly, the jury asked, you know, well, if we can't, on the third day of deliberating, the jury asked, uh, well, if we can't come up with a verdict, are we, are we going to be kept uh, sequestered over the Christmas holiday? And the judge said yes. And that was why that last holdout juror switched his vote from, uh, you know, not guilty to uh, guilty because they all wanted to just get out of there. And so the end result of all of that was that I was wrongfully convicted of a murder and rape, which I didn't commit. Um, I was 16 when I was arrested. I was 17 by the time the trial started and I lost. And I was given a 15 to life sentence. Uh, it was an adult sentence because I had been charged and tried as an adult. And the judge sentenced me, even though he said, maybe, maybe you are innocent. And I was sent to a men's maximum security prison. That's a lot for anybody to take in. And all I'm doing is listening. I can't even begin to imagine what you were going through. So before we go any further with the story, tell us what you were going through. Your mother and your grandmother and yourself. And were you hopeful? Were you defeated? What were the emotions that you were going through through this whole process? When I had been arrested, I, I was, um, I would say I was, de I felt depressed. I felt suicidal. So I was uh, in suicide watch in a county jail. Uh, I got bailed out after 35 days, uh, but I felt like, you know, my life was over. I mean, I thought I was going back to my life, but I never could. You know, they wouldn't allow me to go back to the high school. Uh, I was hated in Peekskill, you know, and you know, it was a big, yes. big meeting. And uh, so I lost all of my friends and the few that I didn't lose, their parents were not willing to let their kids play with me any longer. Uh, and it was, it was, it was, uh, it was a frightening thing, you know, as well. You know, it was, like I said, there was a lot of prejudicial pre-trial coverage. So I felt like my life was over. And so I did make a suicide attempt, which, resulted in my being involuntarily committed to a mental hospital for six months. So I felt, uh, I did feel depressed there, but at some point I began to feel hopeful, uh, after that. And so after about six months, I was, uh, I was, I was, uh, released. So heading into the trial, I felt optimistic. I mean, many members of my extended family believed in the system and they all told me that I, you know, since I was innocent, I would be found not guilty, that everything would be okay. So I was hopeful going into the trial. So when I when they said guilty, you know, I I remember just sitting there in a stunned disbelief. I even questioned my own hearing. I mean, I thought, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, did did, uh, did I just hear that right? Did did I did I miss the word not in front of the word guilty? That was, that was how I felt in the moment. And then you know, I felt I, I again felt hit really a low point mentally, uh, psychologically. You know, in the county jail and initially being transferred to the state prison system, just feeling, you know, just feeling depressed and, you know, thinking about suicide and just really not being, overall, just not being in a really good place. But eventually I shook that off. You know, I mean, I, I think a number of things uh, happened. I mean, I, you know, in my mind, I wasn't doing a 15 in life sentence. I thought that I was just doing a year or two. 
which I was, you know, for, until the, you know, my appeal was decided, and I would, and I was sure I was going to win because I was innocent, and I, and I was innocent. And I believed in the system, so that was part of it. That was part of how I got through prison. That was part of it, and uh, belief in God was one thing. Another thing was that I used to go to the law library and learn the law, and that gave me a sense of empowerment. I used to collect articles about other people who were exonerated, and I would use that for inspiration. Uh, I used to, from 1998 to 2006, I read three or four nonfiction books a week. Um, I took all the educational programs I could while I was in prison, so kind of putting building blocks in place for if and when I regained my freedom. So I, I guess my point is that I, you know, utilize the time as good best I can. I got the GED, I learned to type, I got an associate's degree, I completed a year towards a bachelor's, I did a lot of other trades like uh, plumbing, painting, general business, which pertains to using the computer in a workforce setting, uh, computer repair, food service, worked as a teacher's aide. Uh, I played a lot of basketball, ping pong, and chess, but you know, I had this elaborate delusion, which was tied into that, you know, like I was a professional player and so were the other people, but it was not really like kids fooling around on a playground. This was more that I needed to get out of the prison for a couple of hours. And that was, you know, what I did. I listened to sports talk radio, but it wasn't sports talk radio. It was like a lifeline to the outside. I would collect nature scene pictures and, and, uh, I would, you know, travel there, uh, mentally. You know, and then the usage of, you know, euphemisms. It's not it's not the prison warden, it's a superintendent, and it's you know, it's not it's not the prison guards, it's the correction officers, and it's not that I'm going to my prison assignment in the morning and the prison assignment in the afternoon. I was going to school or going to going going to work. And in nineteen ninety seven the prison the Elmira Correctional Facility, which is where I spent the bulk of my sixteen years they allowed us to purchase televisions and, and for in-cell use. You know, while the TV stayed off for the most part because I was doing legal work and writing letters looking for help and reading nonfiction books, at the same time, there were certain programs that I used to watch every week. And I, again, engaged in an elaborate delusion. And, you know, I would pretend like if I was uh, visiting with friends, uh, there was another wrongfully convicted prisoner there named Frank Sterling. And he, him and Frank and I used to get together once every six weeks and half the conversation would be about trying to keep each other going morale-wise and the other half would be trying to brainstorm about what the next move to, would be to try to overturn our convictions and regain our freedom. Uh, just as an aside, uh, Frank was ultimately exonerated uh, by DNA evidence um, uh, after 18 years in prison. So after two, he did two more. So it wasn't this that I naively believed that he was innocent, but he actually was. Uh, lastly, I did place an ad in a newspaper, uh, the Sacramento Bee, and that was at the end. And uh, somebody that I didn't know, you know, answered my ad. And, you know, I had referenced in the ad that I was innocent and I was looking for a pen pal. And I wanted, I was just desperate for some outside, you know, some contact mm-hmm, with the outside mm-hmm. world. I was also hoping that at some point the conversation would work its way around to, well, what, what are you doing in there, by the way? And that would be my chance to explain I was innocent, maybe convince him, and then he could kind of become a champion and ultimately build the bridge between me and, 
the ultimate legal services that I need because I had read that that was how a few other wrongful conviction cases ultimately uh, came, came unraveled. So hence the thought process, my thought process is what the point is. And so someone did answer the letter. I mean, it didn't lead to legal help that came in a different way that we'll get to after. Um, but the point is that I was asking him, the stranger that I didn't know from anywhere, you know, should I just give up? Should I just commit suicide? I'm never going to get out of here. And I asked him that many times. And, you know, it felt like he kind of showed up at, in the nick of time, you know, in year 14, just when I, you know, was kind of at the end of my uh, my rope. So all of those reasons were how I survived the experience. Um, there was the physical aspect of it. I mean, Omar was very violent, and, you know, with stabbings and cuttings and gang activity and there were times I was assaulted. There were times I nearly lost my life. This vigilante mentality was people convicted of sex offenses. So I was always, uh, I had that fear in the back of my mind that somebody would discover what I was incarcerated for. You know, that would be a motivation on their part to assault me. But beyond the physicality of that and the food being terrible and, you know, being not fully cooked and other times being uh, burned, uh, there, there was... Uh, there was also the psychological aspect of it. I mean, I had to keep fighting off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, suicidal ideation. Um, but I knew, I knew that nobody was coming to my rescue. So I was going to go out and recruit somebody that I didn't know already. And therefore, I had to hold it together mentally to maximize the chance of that. You had to be dealing with anger. So how did you motivate yourself to overcome those negative emotions? I, I, I can't even begin, as you can imagine, I'm speechless. I mean, I can't even begin to understand well, how to, this could happen. So enlighten us there a little bit. I tried to put the anger out of my mind. I mean, I mentioned collecting articles about other people who were exonerated. And while I kind of use that as inspiration and would imagine the scene at the prison gates and everything. I mean, the flip side to that would be after a while, particularly in the DNA exonerations, I would start to get angry and feel, you know, well, why, why is my case an exception? I should be free too. I'm innocent too. I have a DNA test result that's in my favor. But I tried to keep that out, out of my, I tried not to like dwell on that. And I just was more of like in a determined state to try to, to try to get out of there, and I, I guess that was how I managed the negative, the negative emotions. And you know, a significant part of the time that I was there, I mean, sometimes I even questioned what my own senses were telling me that I was in there. I mean, did am I really in prison? Did this all really happen? Mm -hmm. And I thought about everything that went into the wrongful conviction, which we talked about earlier, and the odds of any one of those things happening seemed to me to be fairly uh, astronomical, let alone for all of them to happen, and yet they all did, and there I was. Well, we want to continue with this story, and I, I hate to take a break right now, but I'm just going to take a 30-second break, and people who are listening, you won't believe what comes next, and you must continue to listen to this phenomenal story, and also how he survived. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. 
She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Phenomenal story. Anyone that's listening, and if you know anybody who has had to deal with this on any level, please ask them to listen to Jeffrey's story because his story doesn't end there. His story is this is just the beginning. Where he's going to take us next is just exciting and uplifting and heartwarming and all of those words that mean there is a silver lining to this terrible, terrible tragedy. So let's begin with what happened. How did you, how did this all come together that you were exonerated? Sure. Uh, while I was in prison, I, you know, I, I appealed my case, um, you know, and, you know, I argued that my lawyer argued that my, I was innocent. I had a different public defender, by the way, different office, and they used oh, the okay. DNA to argue my innocence and that my, you know, that my Fifth Amendment rights had been violated by how I'd been questioned and all the different issues. They raised about 10 of them. And, you know, I, I, uh, I, I lost seven appeals. I mean, I guess the low light of that was when I lost in federal court because the court clerk gave my lawyer the wrong information pertaining to the filing procedure. Oh, my and so my petition arrived four days too late. So I lost there. And, you know, I, I, I uh, the only way back into court after your appeals are over uh, are if you can find some new evidence that mm. wasn't known mm. before that probably would have led to a different uh, verdict. Because I didn't have money to hire an attorney or an investigator, hence the letter writing campaign uh, that I did. So I wrote letters for four years, really getting responses other than the occasional no. I went to the parole board, where because I maintained my innocence, uh, rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, largely based upon that, uh, I, I was denied parole. And at that point, I felt pretty sure I was going to die in prison for a crime I didn't commit. Ultimately, uh, I was uh, exonerated because um, three things happened. Uh, firstly, the Innocence Project agreed to represent me. Uh, I got in touch with them because one of the letters that I wrote uh, to a book author in care of the publishing company was instead sent to an investigator, uh, Claudia Whitman, and she suggested I write the Innocence Project. Uh, asking them to represent me. She lobbied them from outside the organization. She got other respected legal entities to also lobby them. And then I got lucky that one of the intake workers uh, was now an attorney, uh, Maggie Taylor. Uh, she wasn't an attorney then, but uh, she worked intake. And she presented my case to, to the lawyers there three different times because uh, she, she had gotten a no twice. Uh, so she presented it a third time, uh, getting them to accept it. So getting the representation was the first key. Second key was that uh, the district attorney who had fought all of my appeals and blocked me from getting further DNA testing, uh, Jeanine Pirro, her, she left office uh, and her successor was willing to give me the further testing. And the third thing is that we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the databank. 
So they took the crime scene DNA evidence that already didn't match me from before the trial, and they put it in the data bank, and it matched the actual perpetrator, and whose DNA was only there because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case. Uh, confronted with that, he admitted he was the person who had committed the crime. So September 22nd, 2006, the conviction was overturned and I was released. I reported back to court on November 2nd, 2006, at which point all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. And uh, I was then um, free to try to somehow rebuild my life again, whereas he was he was arrested and uh, pled guilty and was sentenced for a crime. Besides the exoneration, were you able to get any kind of retribution? Uh, yeah, I was. Well, it took it after I filed the lawsuit, and after about five, you know, I filed. You can New York State, you can seek compensation in state court, and I did that. And you can also file a federal civil rights lawsuit, and I uh, also did that too. And after about five years, I did receive some financial compensation. And I'm hoping that that was one of the things that was, would help you to do exactly what you're doing now. Yes, it is. It is. Oh, yeah. That's wonderful. So before we go any further, please tell us what it was like for you to reintegrate into society. So it was, in certain ways, it was kind of like going from the fire to the frying pan. You know, uh, it, it, it was. I was released with nothing. Uh, so, you know, I... I lacked stability of housing, so I bounced around from place to place. Uh, you know, at one point I was a couple of weeks from going in a, in a homeless shelter, but Mercy College, which gave me a, a scholarship to finish the bachelor's degree and, you know, the, the meal plan, they also allowed me to live on campus, so that was how I avoided that. Uh, I was always passed over for gainful employment. It uh, seems like all the potential uh, managers, business owners all wanted somebody who could hit the ground running rather than having a little bit of patience for on-the-job training. Mm -hmm. So I was passed over for that. But uh, I did get a job as a weekly columnist. But the problem is that they only wanted one article a week. Uh, I began doing, doing paid speaking engagements around the country. But uh, you only get paid when you get booked. Right. Uh, there, the world was much different than when it was when I uh, was originally in prison. So the G, you know, GPS, cell phone, internet had not been created yet. Uh, there was the uh, the culture was much different. Cities that I knew looked different. So cumulatively, I felt like I was in a parallel world, uh, a place that I didn't belong in. There was the psychological after effects of the experience. I mean, it's common for people to have PTSD, panic mm -hmm. attacks, anxiety, feeling of being frozen in time, feeling of um, processing things at a slower speed. So when I say frozen in time, what I mean is that I was released when I was 32, but I felt like I was 17 because that was the year, that was how old I was when I was last uh, free. Uh, there was the stigma of having been in prison uh, you know, I was there in prison for 16 years wrongfully, yes, but I was still there for 16 years. So right. how much of that rubbed off on you? Is it safe to be alone someplace with you? So when it comes to uh, when it comes to personal relationships, that certainly has been uh, has been a, a factor. So all those things were really uh, were really difficult uh, for me. It was very lonely as well. It was hard to try to break in uh, socially. 
so it was a difficult experience. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, while I struggled with all of that and it was really, really difficult, uh, at the same time, I mean, I, I like always, I fought through it. I mean, I, I got the bachelor's. Ultimately, I got a master's degree from John Jay College. My thesis was written on wrongful conviction, cause, and reform. I was doing advocacy work through speaking, through writing, but also doing media interviews and regularly meeting with elected officials. After about five years, I was financially compensated, and I wanted to take the advocacy work to the next level, so I did take a million and a half dollars from that, and I started the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. Since I sent you in the stats and everything, we've uh, our totals are different, so we've actually gotten 13 people home now, at this point, who were wrongfully imprisoned, and and. Uh, well, we did pass three laws, and then and then um, and then as part of the coalition group, it could happen to you, which I'm an advisory board member of, and which the uh, foundation's part of. At this point, we've been able to pass six laws aimed at preventing uh, wrongful convictions. So we're currently doing policy work within that coalition uh, in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. I'm active in all three uh, chapters, so I regularly meet with elected officials. Uh, and uh, you know, recruit people to join the individuals and organizations to join the uh, coalition. Uh, I've um, I sit on the Global Advisory Council for Restorative Justice International, just advising them on wrongful conviction issues and criminal justice reform issues when they decide like what position they're going to take. I lay issues out. I lay out all sides of various issues, and then I, you know, state my own uh, opinion on that. You know, and then they decide which you know, what position they're going to decide, which might or might not be the same as what, you know, my position is. But I do uh, do that. Uh, at some point, I became not satisfied with uh, sitting in the front row of the courtroom. I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table and uh, represent some of the clients and make some of the arguments, hence making a foray into law school. And I became an attorney with the goal, with the dream of uh, exonerating others as a lawyer so I'm a lawyer now as well and I have the foundation has 10 active cases I've entered some of those cases as co-counsel and I will be taking the lead on a few other cases as well I'm just interested in helping innocent people regain their freedom and you know the policy work aimed at preventing what happened to me from uh, happening to others one question that I have is, did you ever get an apology from the attorney or the police? Short answer is no. If I was to put a little more color to it, I would say that I got an apology from the district attorney and the prosecutor in the courtroom and the judge, but none of those were the people that were originally involved in the okay. case. They were counterparts many years later when I was exonerated. And your mom, I'd like to hear her story too. How, how did she deal with this and is she still alive? Yeah, thank God she is alive. I mean, my grandmother did pass away while I was wrongfully in prison, but thankfully my mother did not. Uh, she's still alive and it was very difficult for her. She told me that the most difficult thing was that when she would come to visit and it was time to leave, and, you know, she knew she couldn't take me with her. She had to right. leave me. So she said that part was very difficult. Uh, secondarily, I know that she was always worried and nervous about me. She was aware that, you know, prison was dangerous. And so, you know, that was another aspect of, of it. Of course, absolutely. 
Yes. But life was also difficult for her and for my brother, who was three and a half years younger than me, because, you know, by proxy, they became, you know, notorious. Well, I became notorious, you know, you know, just for the conviction mm -hmm. of it mm -hmm. you know, that spilled spilled over to them. And ultimately, she, you know, had to uh, move away from peak skill. Uh, my brother turned to drugs and alcohol and dealing with the pain of losing me. I mean, eventually he cleaned himself up and he doesn't do either of those things anymore but his years of running the streets and you know like most right, drug addicts right. engaged in crime to support the habit he still retains a lot of the street mannerisms and language and you know characteristics uh -huh, uh -huh. He, did, he did ultimately drop out of school because the kids were would pick on him in the school bus and in the school and try to stamp him with pencils and so he eventually dropped out and you know he's has never gone back to school actually your your own story is a huge success story but you have taken that pain and you are helping others as you mentioned about your organization so do you have one quick story that you can share with us I know you said I think there's 13 now that have yeah. been exon exonerated so well, well 13 that have been freed some of those are exonerations okay some of them okay will make parole while maintaining their innocence and another person was on their way to being exonerated and then the you know the Attorney General threatened to to uh, you know appeal if they lost the evidentiary hearing and you know it was a five-way collaboration on that and you know if it, all the Four of the four members of that collaboration told him to just take the deal which they were offering, which would result in his immediate removal, and advised him not to. And you know, he uh, went with what the others were saying. And then another person uh, was released via compassionate release. But the, the fact that their case was being reviewed as a possible wrongful conviction case by the DA's office carried some weight. So, uh, whatever whatever legal way we can get anyone out. Uh, we do. Obviously, the goal is exoneration, but, you know, if, if before that, if any other route is available, then we then we do that, too, just to get people out as quickly as we can. So I think that the 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 best story, I think, uh, and this is very hard, by the way, <laughs> uh, but um, that would be William Lopez. So he was in Bill was in, wrongfully incarcerated for 23 and a half years on a uh, shotgun murder in Brooklyn, which he uh, did not commit. Uh, his daughter was one and a half when he went away. Uh, she was 25 by the time he came back out and she had her own child. Uh, he was never able to uh, reconnect um, <clears throat> with with him. Uh, you know, we, uh, we worked in collaboration with his pre-existing legal team. We did some investigative uh, work and we turned up some, you know, new evidence that wasn't known before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that, that led to him uh, being released and... You know, Bill and I became friends. He was not just a client. Um, to give you an idea, sometimes he would show up at my door unannounced with luggage in tow. Hey, well, Bill, what are you, what are you doing? Oh, I'm coming over for the weekend. All right, Bill, well, you know what you're doing. So, you know, it was, uh, you know, we became we became uh, friends and we identified a lot with each other. But, you know, unfortunately, Bill, you know, but Bill passed away after a year and a half being free. But, you know, but Bill will always stand out because that was the first person that we helped free. You know, we had a much closer relationship than, you know, what I've had with the women I've had and still have with the people that I that I got out and just the tragic aspect of his of his case. So, you know, but I like to think that that, you know, year and a half of his life was, 
you know, that he had was the best year and a half he had. And I try to take comfort in knowing right, that. Right, right. Your attitude is just remarkable as well. I mean, even in sharing this story. How did you get the idea to do a documentary? Where did that start and what happened with that? So I was, uh, well, I always wanted to have my story out in a documentary. And I, you know, I've always thought and still continue to think that, you know, there's a space to have a book out or, you know, a movie, maybe a docu-series or even a play or a musical or have the story out in as many different iterations and formats and mediums of art as I, as I can, because ultimately my story is, you know, has the impact of raising awareness about the general problem of wrongful conviction, in my case, just being an example of that. And certainly, uh, the organization kind of tags along with me. So as go I, as goes my organization. So I had all of that and still have all of that in, in my in my head. And I, I was approached by uh, Gia Wirtz. Uh, and uh, I met Gia originally. I, w- I was contacted by a mutual person uh, who said that they were doing a fundraising case uh, for Adnan Syed for the, from, uh, of Serial Fame, which is really what got, really broke open the whole world of podcasts and and uh, so I spoke there and I, I met her uh, there and then um, we bumped into each other a couple of more times, including at a really big event in Washington, D.C., a fundraising event for him at which I was a keynote speaker. And she saw somebody that was following the family around with a camera in the furtherance of making a uh, documentary about the case. And so the light bulb went off in her head that she could be involved in criminal justice work and you know, in, in wrongful conviction specifically, but by, by use of the camera rather than becoming an attorney. And so uh, she went, she, I forgot what her career was before, but uh, she decided that, you know, her career wasn't all that fulfilling. And she went to New York film school and graduated. And she approached me about doing a documentary about my case. And huh, it's kind of funny because when she asked me, I said, yes, but you know, I say yes to everybody. I mean, and I get approached on a regular basis by many people about many different things. And I, I say yes to everybody. And, you know, I almost never hear from them again. Uh, but I did. Uh, but I did hear back from her a few weeks after that. And uh, then I thought, oh, OK, maybe this is going to be a little bit different. And then we met a couple of weeks after that where she showed up to actually film and she brought all this equipment and another person. And uh, we just, we went from there and, you know, that was her idea of doing the documentary, but the original thought in my head and, you know, she took a different approach uh, with Conviction, which is available on, uh, reviewing on Netflix, which was that she wanted to show, and this is just a documentary short, it's like 20, 20 minutes. Uh, she wanted to show the, the, about my advocacy work and life post exoneration rather than doing a deep dive into the legalities of my case and so make it to make it distinguished from other wrongful conviction documentaries and i will have to say her tactic worked because conviction has been shown in 14 different film festivals it was Mm, wonderful it was nominated for four awards and uh it uh won three times uh, best best documentary best cinematography and award of distinction so it did win the awards. And the thing that I'm most proud of with respect to uh, Conviction, in Conviction, I used the platform that I had to raise awareness about the non-innocence uh, justice reform issues, uh, things I had been subjected to, 
things that I had witnessed, you know. So in conviction, I talk about, you know, the lack of effort on the part of the staff to curtail the prisoner-on-prisoner violence and the verbal abuse from guards to the prisoners and uh, the terrible medical care in, pris- in, in, in prison and elderly people in prison and how the prison medical care was particularly inept when it came to the advanced geriatric needs of elderly uh, prisoners. I talked about people that are over sentence. I saw people in prison that had more time for drug cases than, than people that did that were there for killing people and other acts of violence. And wow. how I would see uh, you know, the absence of college education in prison and how I would see prisoners that were literally living in honor block or, you know, otherwise serving as examples and role models for the younger prisoners. And they would go to a parole board and they would have bachelor's degrees and associate's degrees and complete all these different uh, therapeutic programs and vocational programs, and yet they would be denied parole in the name of what the original uh, crime was that they were convicted. And so I, I talked about the injustice of that and how that's like a complete abandonment of any idea of belief in uh, re- rehabilitation and second chances and how that demotivates uh, prisoners. So uh, the solitary confinement and uh, technical parole violations. And so I talk about that stuff in in conviction, just trying to use that platform to bring attention uh, for that. Yes, I looked at that and I see that it's on Amazon Prime and it has all five star reviews. So we are definitely going to have the links on your show notes so that people can uh, take in 20 minutes. I mean, that that's awesome that you could tell that story in such a short period of time and that it's gotten in such incredible reviews. My hat's off to you. My goodness, I'm just sitting here. You are an amazing person, and I'm sure you've heard that many, many times. But you didn't stop there. You're, you're, you're still going. You're going strong. You're introducing all kinds of incredible things, including a new game. I want to hear about your game. Yes, Recharge Beyond the Bars Reentry Game uh, was created by Leslie Robinson, a therapist. Uh, I partnered with Leslie uh, on that. She um, showed she showed me Recharge, and I played it with her. And I decided to uh, help her bring it to life by by investing some money into it. And so Recharge, um, let me describe. So it's very difficult for formerly incarcerated people to ex, ex, express what what is it like to be in prison. What is it like to try to uh, re-enter society. Uh, when we're talking to people that we know have no frame of reference for those things. So it's a communication barrier there. It's very hard. And I know that on the family and friend end of it, uh, kind of my brother's quotation kind of encapsulates what I'm going to express. So he said to me once, I don't know what to say to you. I don't know what not to say. I don't know what to ask. I don't know what not to ask. So recharge steps in the middle and it removes that awkwardness hmm. through icebreaker, yeah. icebreaker, uh, icebreaker questions. So you know there are gear questions there that have a symbol in front of it that are only someone formerly incarcerated would answer, but everybody can respond to the questions. And there's general questions that everybody answers, and then there are uh, group activities which have a puzzle piece symbol in front of the in front of the questions, and and play from two people uh, all the way forward. 
uh, there are appreciation chips, which is my, my favorite part of the game. So you turn up a number, which one through six, let's say you pull a one, then you turn over a bigger deck that has the question on it. So if you pull a one, you would read question one. The person reading would announce what kind of question it is. They would read the question. They would be the first person to answer. And we go around in a circle. Appreciation chips come in because if everyone gets seven of them, and if you feel that somebody really puts something into an answer, you can validate them by giving them a chip or however many chips you uh, feel inclined uh, to give. And where is this sold? Yeah, it's currently sold uh, on. It's currently sold online. Uh, uh, re- Recharge. Re- the website is Recharge the Game. Um, that, uh, Recharge the okay, Game. Okay, we'll have those links up there for you. Okay. Yeah. So, but that was, you know, I, I that was kind of my way of giving back to the incarcerated population as well as the, you know, the the people on on, on parole. I mean, I did, you know, there were there were a few mentors and you know people that I had different types of relationships with while I was in prison, and you know, I've I've met some of them on the street that are you know of doing well, leading a crime crime free life, and so that was my way of kind of like you know, and I, and I suffered from a lot of these after effects you know the difficulties the challenges many of them are the same and you know so hence by getting involved in recharge but i've also you know i i positioned justice reform as uh you know about you know about accuracy as about justice it's not it's not anti-cop or anti-prosecutor definitely against cops and prosecutors who um, engage in misconduct mm-hmm. yes and you do your job in a lawful, ethical way that uh, respects, you know, state and federal constitutional rights. So, look, I got no problem. Uh, I have no problem with you. Uh, and so, you know, in, in, in positioning it that way, I've been able to pitch the tent pretty wide, and I've gotten some buy-in from some amazing quarters. I mean, for the last uh, five years, I have uh, co-taught the ethics, morals, and ethics class at a police academy, and. Uh, in 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 New Jersey. Oh, that's awesome! What a great idea. That's... And then I, I was uh, I served on the uh, Peekskill Police Task Force Reform Group, and you know where I was on their policy subcommittee with their sitting police chief and the county police officer and a retired detective, and I was able to get consensus on various ways to improve policing and improving their police uh, manual. Uh, I served on the transition team for the. Uh, new Westchester District Attorney, uh, you know, helping to, uh, you know, read white papers and, you know, draft instructions for her uh, soon to be forming a conviction review unit. Uh, so I, I did that. And I've also uh, uh, spoken in front of various groups of prosecutors and DA offices. And on four different occasions, I addressed different groups of judges when they asked me to speak about various uh, wrongful conviction related uh, topic. So those that's all part of my, you know, body of work. And I, I include that when I speak in different settings and I've spoken at various, you know, rallies and when all the violence and, and destroying of property was going on and there were rallies held to try to prevent that. I mean, I, I spoke at those rallies and I explained, you know, that how those negative tactics really are distractors. The conversation is only going to be about that. It's not going to be about your underlying issues of which they are legit. And I agree with you on in terms of the brutality and unjustifiable deadly police force and other misconduct. If you go about it in illegal, negative ways, you're distracting from 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 the message. And, you know, I was able to draw that line and encourage people to go about things in a productive 
uh, legal legal way and uh, it's been effective that way. I'm not a defund guy. Uh, you know, I, if I, God forbid, I have an emergency and I call 911, I don't want to be put on hold. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's uh, something going on and we need a police officer. I'd like an officer to show up rather than a, rather than a social worker or a psychologist. Uh, but I do believe that, you know, the police do need to have better training when it comes to dealing with um, people that have mental health issues or experiencing a crisis. And I'm all about accountability as well. So I that's awesome that position now. And I think it plays really well that I'm able to kind of stand in the middle and have some, you know, carry some moral weight. Well, you definitely have incredible hindsight i would think who would have ever guessed <laughs> right you know that <laughs> that your yeah, life would right. turn yeah, out really. this way you know <laughs> i mean one of the things on this show that i hear so many in phenomenal stories of how people have been dealt you know such terrible things in life and yet they were able to turn it around well you're the poster boy you are definitely the poster boy for that because you have taken extreme negativity and turned it into not only positive things in your own life but the ability to help so many others so our time is up i could talk to you or listen to you <laughs> for probably another several hours and your everything will be on your show notes to where people can connect with you your story your movie your game i am so pleased to have had you on never ever give up hope today is there anything you want to say in conclusion i do if my story inspires any any of the listeners we do have a crowdfunding page on the website patreon oh my wonderful my dream is what if there were 25,000 people, what if there were 100,000 people that were willing to donate on a recurring basis, $3 or $5 or some other amount that, you know, that they're, that they're able, you know, that they're able to, to, to do. I mean, we read about, I hear about political candidates of either party and raising tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars from small dollar donors. You know, why not for justice reform? Why not for an organization that has the track record that we have? Uh, my ultimate dream is to have a chapter of the Deskovic Foundation in each state and ultimately each country, because I really see wrongful conviction as a worldwide issue, not a New York issue, not not, not not even a U.S. issue, and countries where we do not hear about uh, exonerations, it's not because they're not. We don't hear about wrongful conviction. It's not because no wrongful convictions are happening. It's that nobody is nobody's working on them. Nobody's been. Uh, nobody's being exonerated. And you're about to change that, right? <laughs> I yes, I am. Okay. I am. If I was to just give a piece of advice, and I'll end okay. with that. Okay. Okay. This is all about you know. This is uh, you know <laughs> never give up, right? So my formula for never giving up for for overcoming adversity, which is um, can be applied to a any scenario, not not limited to wrongful imprisonment. So you have a goal which is going to obviously be, you know, overcome whatever adversity you're experiencing. So you have a goal, have a realistic plan. You should be able to look at your plan three right. or four different ways and say to yourself, yeah, I could see how that might work. Because who's going to, who wants to carry out a plan that you don't think could be successful? So have a realistic, right? have a realistic plan. Uh, be flexible. 
remember that the goal is the goal. The plan is not the goal. So if some unexpected door opens for you, which brings you towards that goal, don't decline to walk through it just because, you know, that wasn't part of your plan. Another thing is uh, no excuses. There might be reasons why something is more difficult to accomplish, but no, no reason why it why it, it, it can't be. Uh, work really hard. Like, you know, how hard do you want this? Leave it all out on the field, so to speak, to use a sports uh, analogy. You're, you're, nothing's going to drop into your lap. But if you work really hard, if you position yourself for a miracle, it's more likely to find you. A door is likely to open. Somebody will reach reach down and, and pull, pull you up. Something like that will likely to happen, but only if you work really hard. And never give up. And when you can't go on anymore, do what I do, which is I say to myself, you know, maybe this is the key moment right here. Maybe I was on the verge of a breakthrough, but because I quit, it's not going to happen. So even though I can't go on anymore, I'm going to do it anyway just to see what happens on the other side. That was excellent. My goodness. And I really liked what you say to position yourself for a miracle. This once is you have that breakthrough, though, reach back for others in that same position and, and, and do some work on the preventative side. So that can I've seen people do that, whether it's a former prisoner working at at risk youth, whether it's somebody that used to be homeless, that's now working with that population, whether it's somebody a victim of sexual assault or who's trafficked that's now helping with that, whether that's someone who is a former domestic violence, whether a victim, whether that's someone that's faced discrimination or racism or anything extreme like that or less, you can take that formula and apply it and your life will be meaningful. Your suffering will count for something. It'll be healing. It'll be cathartic and you'll make the world a better place. Thank you again. That was an excellent summary. The links are going to be on the webpage. I hope people will connect with you and we will never forget you or what you are doing. What you've been through is one thing, but what you are doing is even more exciting. So thank you again for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.